Good morning. It's good to see you. If you would, please take your Bible and let's look to Nehemiah chapter 6. We are finishing up today, Lord willing, the first section of two sections in the book of Nehemiah. So in chapter 7, it really takes a turn in a different direction. And so we are reaching that halfway point in the book as we look at this wonderful message. And uh, you notice that the title this morning is The Enemy's Last Ditch Efforts. We've been looking in chapters 4, 5, and now 6, and we see how when the people of God obeyed God and got to doing the work that God had called them to do, we have seen how the enemy has risen up against them and has done several things to try to just really stop the work and dissuade them from being faithful to God's call upon his people. And as we look at this chapter today, we see really their last-ditch efforts. We see really the mistreatment, especially of Nehemiah personally. And being mistreated by someone is never easy, but the betrayal of people whom you have trusted and whom you believe to be friends or at least with you, well, that stings even more. And it can happen anywhere. It can happen in the workplace. It can happen in the home, of course, and certainly it can happen in the family of God. And I've experienced this very early in life, actually. Um, And uh, I was thinking this morning as we were driving in, and maybe uh, I probably shouldn't have been thinking of it, but I was thinking of over the years since I was a child, how I have witnessed this happen in my life in several different ways. I remember when I was an elementary student, there's a lady in our church who uh, befriended me, so I thought... And uh, what I, I came to find out that she was just really trying to pump me for information about my family so she could gossip about uh, the pastor and his family and, and uh, just try to tear down um, my father in particular. And uh, of course, I was like seven years old. I had no clue as to what was going on. And that's my first memory of it. And honestly, um, Uh, I can go through a lifetime of where I can point out things that I've witnessed and experienced with that um, since those days, so almost 50 years now later. And and it is, it's a a terrible thing, and it's it's very difficult. And one one of the things I love about the Scripture, there's several things I love about the Scriptures, but one in particular is it speaks to real life. It speaks to where we live. It's not theoretical. It, it, it faces the world as it is, and it speaks life into it in this very dark world. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, we see people who have already shown themselves to be enemies of Nehemiah um, try to bring him down one last time. But also we see people who uh, he thought were his friends, should have been his friends, who betrayed him and betrayed his trust and tried to do him harm. So there are two sections to chapter 6. 
the first section, the first 14 verses really talk about these enemies and, and their attempt to manipulate and, and intimidate Nehemiah. And it is a reminder of how the enemy is consciously scheming against the people of God. And this is a, a picture of that when we look in chapters 4, 5, and 6, especially in what we see today in chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 11 says that, that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so there are schemes, and there are schemes of the people who are under Satan's influence. The second part of, of this chapter announces the completion of the wall and the reactions of the enemy to the wall's completion. So the first thing I would like us to notice here is the opposition to the completion of the wall. And there are basically two words I'd like us to think of when we, we see this. And the two words are manipulation and intimidation. Manipulation and intimidation. Let's read together and let's read the first four verses in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, come let us meet together at Cherifirim in the plain of Ono, that they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? They sent messengers to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. So we see here, Sam Ballot and his crowd, they, they're, they're making this one last ditch effort. I mean, all that's left is to hang the gates on, on the, the walls and, and finish it off, but the, the wall is completely um, done. That part of the construction is done, and, and they're recognizing this, and they're thinking, how can we... How can we get at him? And this is the plan, really. They're thinking, if we can just get at the leader, if we can get Nehemiah himself, then this will just break down because these people all along have been following Nehemiah and his leadership. And so if we can knock him out, then we knock the whole project out. We knock these people out and they will be back to, to way, the way they were before. And if you'll remember with me, what way were they before? They were a reproach to the other nations before God. And so this is what they, the enemy wanted. And they think, if I can just get, Samballot thinks, if I can just get to Nehemiah, this will work. So what is their first plan? It is false friendship. And they ask Nehemiah, they send a letter to him and say, will you come to the plain of Ono. Now, Ono was located near the boundary of Judah and Samaria and Ashdod. In other words, it was closer to the homeland of his enemies than it was to the central land of his own people. And therefore, he would be vulnerable. And that was the plan, of course. Get him away from Jerusalem, get him on our ground, get him to come to us and then we'll snatch him up, we'll do away with him, we'll kill him, we'll come up with some excuse, uh, some story that will please the king, that he'll, he'll believe, and we'll be rid of Nehemiah, and we will put a stop to what is happening. 
And so this was their plan. And it sounded very friendly. Hey, come, let's discuss. We, we want to be reasonable. We want to talk with you about these things. We, we, we want to be on good relations with you. And this is the plan that they have. It, it reminds me of a story in church history um, about uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third, um, not the most recent Pope John, but this is Pope John from 1410 to 1415, and he called a man named John Huss to come to him. And the problem with Huss was this: Huss had been doing something that uh, the leadership in the church in that day did not want him doing or anyone doing. And what was he doing? He was reading the Bible. And as he was reading the Bible, he came across the understanding that the only true authority is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And all authority comes from him. And his word is the authority. And Jesus Christ himself is the sole authority to look to the scriptures. That's where we go. That is our authority under Christ. And so... They wanted him to come in, and so what, what the message was, basically, you can come, you're going to be safe. Nothing's going to happen to you, and we just want to hear your teaching. We want to understand what is going on with you. And so Huss makes the trip, and he arrives there in uh, uh, the Council of, of, of Constance in November of 1414, as soon as he gets there, they grab him, they put him in chains, and uh, not much um, time later, Huss was burned at the stake as a heretic. Well, Nehemiah, he didn't fall for that ploy. He saw through it, and he recognized that what they were doing is they were wanting to stop the work, and they were wanting to do him harm personally. And so, what does he say? He says, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And it tells us something about Nehemiah's focus and his heart. His focus was to do what God had called him to do. This was his heart. This was his devotion. This is what his heart and mind were set on. And we can learn from this and should learn from this today that we should have a focus in our lives, and that focus is to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and be obedient to his call upon our lives, whatever that is, and to give ourselves totally to it. Everything we do, everything that we're part of is weighed in relationship to God's call upon our lives. That means that there are some things that we say yes to, and that means that there will be some things that we say no to. And some of the things that we say no to may be good things, but they're not the things that God has called us to be a part of. It means that there is a focus on what we are doing and how we go about it. It's interesting, Paul wrote this in Philippians 3. Verses 13 to 14, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid a hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, in John 4, 34, our Lord said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We've been going through this study and we realize that God had called Nehemiah to lead these people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. I wonder this morning, what has God called you to do in his work? What is it that God has laid on your heart and said, this is what you need to be about? Among the people of God, as we are a body and as Everybody has its own function and own purpose that we are joined together for one cause, though, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about how when one member of the body fails, it has an effect on the whole member or every member of the body, on the whole body. And so again, I ask you, what is it that God has called you to be doing? What are you doing? in his work, joined together with the people of God for his glory. Because again, not everyone can do everything, but everyone is called to do something. And it's important for us to be a part of whatever that something is that God has called us to, to be about and to be devoted to him in it and to be a blessing to others as we are a blessing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and serving him. And we know this, Jesus said that the Father, had, just as the Father had sent him, he says to his disciples, so I'm sending you. And so if the Lord's food was to do the will of him who sent him to accomplish his work, should that not also be our food? Should that not also be what we are about? Our purpose in life is unto Jesus Christ completely. We belong to him. And so Nehemiah was set on this and he did not give in into any kind of pride. He didn't say, you know what? You're right, we should meet. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you guys just how it really is. I'll let you know just how much God has used me and how you ought to, to listen to me and you ought to give in to me. No, 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 he, he, he wasn't concerned about whether they were for him or against him. He knew they were against him. What he was concerned about is what God had called him to do and to keep at that. And notice he, he says here, uh, as we look at this, he says, God, um, later on in the passage, he says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. That's what he wants. He wants to be able to continue to do the work that God has called him to do. One of the things we may wonder, how, how do you see through a ruse like this? How do, you, how do you recognize this? Well, Nehemiah had plenty of dealings with these people. We've been working through this. 
He knew what their heart was. He, he knew where they were coming from. And if they, you may say, well, well, couldn't they have repented? Did they show any sign of repentance? And did their, if they're acting like they've repented, does their repentance come equal to all the things that they've done against the people of God and the work that they were doing? Not at all. Not even close. And so he recognized what was going on here. And some of us were just naive. I was trying to say, how can I say this nicer? I guess I can't. Maybe I can, but it's not coming to me. And that may say more about me. But we're just so naive. We just, we just want everybody to get along and let's just get along. Well, yeah, we all, well, we, I, I think we all like that or want that, but then no, we don't all want that because if we all wanted that, then it would happen, but not everybody wants that. There will always be those who are the enemy of God and his people, his church, and that is just the reality of things as they are until the day comes when the Lord Jesus Christ will once and for all put Satan away and deal with him and those under his influence, that day hasn't come yet. And so we are so naive to think that everybody is like us. Because Christians, if we truly do love the Lord Jesus Christ, we do want to be at peace with others. And we do want to have fellowship with others, and, and, and we want to have a good relationship with others. It's just not the reality. And, and Nehemiah understood this, and he was unwilling to get attached to wicked people. The Scripture teaches bad company ruins good character, corrupts good character. And we need to learn from this and recognize this. And so as Nehemiah gets this from them, you may say, man, he didn't give them a chance. He, he should have gone to them. No, he had better sense than a lot of us does and that he recognized where they were coming from. They had shown who they were and he wasn't going to give in to their trickery and their ruse of friendship with a means to do him harm. And that is something, well, I already told you. I learned that lesson when I was seven years old. And I wish I could tell you again, that's the only time I've ever seen that happen in my lifetime among the people of God. And Sam Ballot wasn't among the people of God. Now, I'm not done yet. So I've got more to say about this, okay? But I'm going to move on, and let's look at the next section here. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Samballot sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. 
and now it will be reported to the king. Talking about King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to them saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. So first, they, they try false friendship. Secondly, subversive slander. Slander. They realize there are four attempts to get him to come, and it must have been frustrating to them. I mean, the fact that they sent the letter four times and, and he didn't uh, come to them, they were really sure that plan was going to work. And it just, Nehemiah just didn't give in to them. So now they're going another direction. They send this, this letter, and basically it is slander, and it is a way of trying to manipulate him and scare him and say, you know what? If the king hears what we're, what we're hearing, and when did they just hear it? Well, they just probably heard it when they wrote it. That's when they heard it. And they said, you know, when the king actually hears this, you know it's going to go bad. Now, here's the problem with this letter that makes it even tougher. Did Israel and Judah, and Judah in particularly, um, did they have a history of rebelling against foreign kings? Absolutely. They did. In fact, when they first came from exile... Um, and uh, Zerubbabel led a group from exile, the first group that came. Um, Nehemiah was the third group. There were three groups. Uh, Zerubbabel led a group, and then Ezra, the priest, led a group, and then Nehemiah led a group out of exile back to Judah. When the first group came, they started working on rebuilding the temple and getting all this work done, and uh, the enemy sent a letter to the king and said, they're building this city so that they can rebel against you. And they said, and the letter said, look, look it up, king. You'll see they have a history of this. And they did. And so what did the king, Artaxerxes, this same king, do? He put a stop to it. He said, do not allow them to keep building because they are rebellious people. And I don't want to deal with this because he had enough to deal with with rebellions all over his empire. It was vast, and it was difficult to keep people under control. And so this would just be one more instance. So he said, no more building. It's over. And so they're really going here again. They're a little more sly for themselves. Notice they don't send the letter directly to Artaxerxes this time. They send it to Nehemiah. Why? Because Nehemiah has a good relationship with King Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes may not take well to us talking about his buddy like this. So let's go directly to Nehemiah and try to scare him. Because if we go directly to Artaxerxes, we may be the ones in trouble. And so we're going to go around about this way and try to intimidate him. And so this was their plan. And they make false accusations here. And, and uh, you know, I, I can hear it now. It was very well known among the people in that area, the people of Judah, 
the Lord is going to reestablish the throne of David. That was well known. That prophecy was out there. Perhaps Nehemiah is a descendant of David. Was he? Was he? We don't know. Maybe. Maybe he is. Maybe Nehemiah is the one that is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Maybe he is leading these people to do these things. And it's one of these things that they're, not, they're just not out and out saying that he's this, but they are saying, hey, he's going to make himself a king. He's already hired the prophets to proclaim this, and this is what he's up to. And I love his answer to them. You don't know what you're talking about. You're making this up. This is ridiculous. And what does he do? He just gets on with the work. He continues on, and they're trying to cause him trouble, and um, he says, we're just going to keep on the work, and he prays to the Lord, oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, anyone that knows me well knows I am technologically um, just uh, ignorant, completely and so I don't know if you twit or tweet. I don't know what that is. I mean, there's a little bird. I don't know. Something like that is going on with that. It's wonderful, um, I'm sure. And um, all these other, um, they're called platforms, I guess. I don't know. Yes, that sounds wonderful. I'll use that word anyhow. And I'll be wrong, and that's okay. And I'll prove my point that I know little to nothing about it. What I do know is this, though. I've heard enough to say or enough, I've heard enough to, to say this with knowledge, that among people of faith, one person will say something about another, and then others will get on, and they'll have this tweet war, or Twitter war, or whatever they're tweeting and Twittering, and that's about how ridiculous it is that I can't even say what it is, and it's awful. And we get all caught up and what people are saying about us, rather than getting on with the work that God has called us to do. And Satan rejoices when we twit. I like twit better because I think we're acting like twits. <laughs> when we do that sort of thing, and we always feel like, well, I need to defend myself. No, you don't. You don't have to. Well, I just need to make sure that they're clear. I think they're clear. They just don't like what you've said. They don't agree with you. They're trying to misrepresent you. They have made it personal. But you don't need to respond to that. Get on with the work that God has called you to do. If you did mess up, Admit you messed up, and then move on. But we're so concerned about what people think about us and, and how they misrepresent us. And you'll do nothing if, you get to, if your goal is to, to make sure nobody does that. Because the only way people will stop doing that sort of thing with you is when you're doing nothing and you're not worth talking about. And that is not what God has called us to do. 
When we are faithful to the work that God has called us to do, the enemy will always be out there. And one of their ploys is to misrepresent us and, and to say things that we, we had, have no part of, just like they told Nehemiah, said to Nehemiah, oh, we hear that you're making yourself the king. There couldn't be anything farther from the truth. And what does he do? He keeps up the work and he prays to God, strengthen my hands so I can keep up doing what you called me to do. And so the other way, they're, they're, they're just trying to manipulate here. They're lying and, and trying to get him to fall into that. And this should be the response of every believer when Satan tries to frighten us, misrepresents us. We need to trust God and be equally courageous in doing the work that God has called us to do. And it's not easy. It's not easy. Because we do want to be at peace with others. And we do want to have a good relationship with others. And the thing is, the enemy's not thinking along those lines. And the enemy will influence people to say things that will discredit you and get you off track if you'll let them. And you have to stick to what God has called you to do. It's interesting here, we see the next ploy, and this begins with verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabal, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they're coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had sent him or God had not sent him but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Samballot according to these works of theirs and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. And here we have the third ploy is a compromised commitment. It's interesting, there are basically two temptations that they, they aimed at this time. The text indicates that this prophet, Shemaiah, was confined in his house. We don't know why, so it mustn't be pertinent to the story. But he is he is in his own home, and he's confined there. And so it was a convenient way to get Nehemiah to come to him anyhow, this prophet. And Shemaiah's prophecy was simple. He told Nehemiah, the enemies, they're planning to kill you. They're planning to kill you this very night. You need to save yourself. Save yourself by going to the temple and taking asylum. So two parts. 
One, you need to show yourself a coward and run. Two, you need to disregard God's law concerning, concerning your being forbidden to enter the temple unless you're a priest. Because this, this is bigger than that. Your life is at stake. And so the priests are the ones, the only ones, that are to enter the temple. And so this prophet is saying, no, you're about to get killed. You need to run and hide in the temple. Now, by the way, what is the punishment for someone who goes into the temple who is not a priest in the law? You know what that is? Death. So what a way to take care of Nehemiah. We don't even have to get our hands dirty. We don't even have to look like we're even a part of this. He runs and goes into the temple. It's a done deal. They will take him. He will condemn himself from having done that, and he will be put to death by his very own law that he believes in, and we're rid of him. And so this is their ploy. Now, after this, we see here, what I would call the second temptation, although the text doesn't actually speak to it this way, but his prayer, Nehemiah's prayer, points to this, I think, because he says here in verse 14, remember, O my God, Tobiah and Samballot according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Now, it may seem odd to you that I'm mentioning prophets who are telling Nehemiah to do these things. These were supposed to be prophets of the Lord. They were prophets among the people of God. These were not outsiders. These were supposed to be people that Nehemiah could trust as spiritual leaders in his midst. And it is these spiritual leaders who have joined with the enemy and are trying to tear down and actually get Nehemiah killed. And what a, what a rough thing to do. And what, what am I saying is his second temptation, the first being to be a coward and hide in the temple? That's the first one. The second one, I think, is the temptation is to lose faith in the people of God because there are actually leaders among the people of God who have joined the enemy and are trying to bring him down. And this is something that Satan would do to us today. He would like us to be afraid. He would like us to run. He would like us to hide instead of being at work and do the work that God has called us to do. Also, he would like us to be so discouraged by our brothers and sisters in Christ or those who appear to at least be brothers and sisters of Christ, and only the Lord really knows, that we become so discouraged by people within the people of God who are doing the work of the enemy that we just want to quit and get away from it 
and have nothing to do with it whatsoever. To lose heart because of people we have trusted who have let us down and shown us that they're untrustworthy. I recall the church I, I really think of as the church I grew up in. I, I lived in Cleveland till I was 12 years old, and we were in that church uh, for 11 years where my dad was pastor there. But when I was 12, we moved to Dayton, Ohio, and he was in that church for 31 years. That's the church um, where I met my wife, and, and uh, I was a teenager, and I, I think of most of my growing up and just branching out and doing things more in that church where I preached my first sermon and uh, just loved the people in that church. And uh, as I, I think about these, these people in that church, um, I think about when we went there, the former pastor had been having just an inappropriate relationship with a 15-year-old girl in that church. But that wasn't the whole story. There were a group of lesbians in the church who were blackmailing the pastor because they knew he was having this relationship with this 15-year-old girl. And he, uh, um, an associate pastor, I'm told, who, who this man became a good friend of mine and our families who, who was there, um, was my pastor there, one of my, our, our pastors, but he uh, confronted this senior pastor, and the senior pastor blacked his eye, knocked him right out, not, not out, but knocked him down on the pavement in the, the parking lot of the church. That's the church that we went into. Last I heard of that pastor, he had been up in northern Ohio and had been in jail. I don't know, it was some, some other dealings, but that's what we went into um, when we went there, and when we got there, um, the lesbian crowd uh, was just really angry with my father because he basically called them out, and he says, I know what you've been doing. I know what you're up to. It's not happening anymore, and so they threatened him. I remember this because I got my Daisy Red Rider BB gun and I kept it handy when I was home by myself all the time. And my parents came in one day, and I'm sitting in the chair with my Daisy Red Rider. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing? And I said, they said that they were coming, and I'm ready for them. They said, You're not, I can put an eye out. I can put an eye out. <laughs> you know, so I was ready for them. And they were a tough-looking crew, I'll tell you that much, too. They were. A lady in our church, wonderful lady, godly woman, not long after we'd been there, she walked out and said to my father, she said, I'll never trust the pastor ever again. And she was a nurse. My dad responded to her and said, well, I'll never trust another nurse again. And she's like, what? And then she got it. You get a bad doctor? What do you do? Go find you another doctor. Isn't that right? Not every doctor is a bad doctor. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. People are people. 
You take them one at a time. And there will be people in the church that are not so godly. In fact, some of them unbelievers. Have you, are, are you not up on the wheat and the tares? And Jesus talking about that? Yes, it's a reality. Does that mean we turn our back on the church and we turn our back on the people of God because Satan has infiltrated it with his own people? Absolutely not. That's ludicrous. But that's exactly what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to lose heart. He wants us to say, I can't trust any of these people and I can't trust anyone because this is what they've done. And then the real question is, well, can the Lord trust you? Because if you're going to give up and not serve him because of what other people are doing, really, how can you be trusted? That wasn't very nice either, was it? But we need to think about these things. And we need to come clean with the reality of it, that there is a spiritual war going on. It's very real. And we need to stand in there and be faithful to what God has called us to do through thick and thin. And sometimes it gets thick. Or sometimes you feel pretty thin even in the whole thing. But you keep going, staying faithful to what God has called you to do. And I think about this. This morning as I was driving in, I was thinking about several people. I, I just give you a long list over the years that I have seen. And I've seen it even at the seminary. And I've been in, I'm in my 21st year at the seminary. I've seen it through my life in the church, growing up in the church, through pastoring in, in, in churches and then at the seminary. It, it's, it is because there is a spiritual war going on. It's happening. But you know what the Lord did for me this morning? Well, he'd already done this this, this last week as I was um, more and more looking at this passage. He reminded me for Nehemiah, Nehemiah had Ezra. We haven't got to meet Ezra yet. But in the second half of the book, we get to meet Ezra, a godly man who worked right alongside Nehemiah and leading the people of God to a real, I'm going to use an antiquated term here. It's just ridiculous that I'll say this, a real revival, a spiritual renewal that takes place among the people of God. And he will have this spiritual friend, and there will be others named who were godly people that will work among work by him. And by the way, in case you want, just go back to chapter three and look at all the names of the people working on the wall. They were all with Nehemiah. And what we tend to do is look at the Sanballats and, and Geshem's and Tobias and not look at all the people that are faithfully day in and day out serving their Lord and that we're together in doing that work. And not only that, not only do we have friends like Nehemiah had Ezra, but I can think of people my entire life also who have been friends that have truly loved the Lord and loved me and have been an encouragement to me throughout my ministry. And there are those people. 
But I think about our greatest friend. Great old hymn declares what a friend we have in Jesus. And yes, we have friends who are brothers and sisters in Christ among the people of God, but also we have the most wonderful friend in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Nehemiah, he turns to his Lord and says, strengthen me, help me, and you, you take care of these people. When he says, remember, oh my God, these people, remember them, he's saying, Lord, you deal with them. I'm gonna be faithful to do what you called me to do. You take care of the enemy. And so this is, this is what we need to be about and, and recognize. Well, we see it's, it's almost anticlimactic. Verse 15, we see the completion of the wall. And, and two words here, affirmation and, and attestation. Um, but verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, uh, Elul, in 52 days. There you have it. It had been just a little over 52 days that uh, just a number of months when Nehemiah first got word of what was going on in Jerusalem. And it was just a matter of months from the time that he spoke to the, he prayed to God, he spoke to the king, and then he made his trek from Susa all the way to Jerusalem. And he met with the people they came together, they had a mind to build, and in 52 days from when they started, it was done. This is the work, by the way, that Sam Ballot and his crowd said was impossible, that it couldn't be done, and they ridiculed them. And this is what happened, they, they, they finished the work, and they stuck with it. And Nehemiah and the people would not allow the enemy to get them off of the task but they stayed at it. There are three reasons I think we see here for this. Um, and that is they were not going to get off the wall and let the enemy dissuade them. They were going to work together cooperate with one another, and that's exactly what they did. People from all walks of life, people who had probably never met one another before that project, all came together as the people of God to do the work of God. But the main reason, let us not forget the main reason, it is because this man of God was committed to the glory of his God, Yahweh, and for the removal of the reproach that had come upon his people and had been directed toward God because of his people. He was concerned first and foremost for the glory of God and for the good of the people of God. That's what Nehemiah lived for. That's what he was all about. And God blessed them in that. So what was the reaction? Let's look at verse 16. It says, when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help 
of our God. Look at the reaction these people had. One of their problems is this. It says that, literally in Hebrew, it says this. When all of our enemies heard and all the surrounding nations saw, they fell greatly in their own eyes. That was their problem. They were too great in their own eyes. The enemy was. And then when they saw what God did, they realized they weren't as great as they thought they were. And that's the truth today. The enemy thinks too highly of itself because the enemy doesn't see the Lord and recognize who he is. And so they think they have it going for them when really they can never successfully oppose God. In the end, it will be a debacle on their their part. In the end, they will see God for who he is. And as Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will see at some point that he is the Lord and that they were wrong. They were wrong. And so deflation, they're deflated. And everything and everyone that contributed to this accomplishment of the project was the result of God's divine hand. Both the people of God knew it, and what's more, the enemies of God knew this truth as well. And then look at the reaction of a few, though. I have to tell you, um, Nehemiah, this first section in in chapter 6, I would love it to end at verse 16. When I get to the end of the book in chapter 13, I wish it would end at verse 3. But it reminds us of some things that are just the harsh reality. The enemy at large, they have lost heart. But what we see here in these last few verses, not everyone. And look at verse 17. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoahanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So there were those among the people of God that were so connected to Tobiah, one of the enemies of the people of God, that they went on a letter-writing campaign to push him up to say he should be our leader. And then Tobiah himself did whatever he could to frighten Nehemiah. What's the point? We will see God and we will see victories won, but until the final victory is won, the war is still on. It's still on. And we can't quit because the enemy won't quit. We must stay faithful. 
we must continue the work that God has called us to do. Because the enemy is still at work. And so this is what we see, and we need to be, we need to know it. We need to be knowledgeable of it. I want to, instead of asking you three questions, I just want to make three closing statements. Number one, don't let the enemy fool you or intimidate you. Don't be fooled by the enemy. Don't let them intimidate you. Our God is greater than the God of this world because our God is over the universe. He's over all things. And so this prince and power of this world, he is strong, but his strength is limited and it's under the authority of the Lord himself. So don't be intimidated. Don't be fooled. Another statement, don't let wolves in sheep's clothing discourage you. Don't let wolves in sheep's clothing discourage you. I know they easily can, some of us. Don't let it happen. Look to your Savior. Look to the Lord. Take a a look at his life. Go into the Gospels. Have you ever just stopped and read slowly all the things that people did to our Lord when he was on this earth? How the enemy treated him, and even his disciples, how they spoke to him, questioned him, acted like he didn't have any sense in some of the things he said. How dare they? Now they came to their senses. But notice how he responds to them and how he continues his work. That's what we've been called to. And finally, keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his will for your life. Keep your eyes on Christ and what he has called you to do. Be faithful. And this is what it means to be the people of God. It is not a calling to be wimpy. It is a calling to be faithful through thick and thin. Because he is faithful. He has called us to be faithful as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are forever faithful. You are omnipotent. You are all wise. You are compassionate with your people. There is nothing that we experience that you you do not know and that you haven't experienced through your son. Your son knows alienation. Your son knows what it means to be betrayed. Your son knows what it means to be misunderstood. Your son knows what it means for his enemies to take him and kill him. And Father, we thank you that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has always been faithful, was faithful on this earth, and always will be faithful to his children, to his people. And Father, we thank you and praise you for that. 
And we realize that we are not greater than our master. And that while he went through all that for us, may we be faithful to follow him wherever he would lead us. And we pray that we would do this with joy and with zeal because we are in Christ. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.